who is militantly opposed to us searching for our birth mothers. That we should always remember that she was our mother. So now I think I have two mothers, adopted mother and a biological mother. Right. I don't have any problem with that. But my adopted mother did have a problem and she just wanted it to be the only one, you know, and she was very insecure. I think, I, I think it's kind of natural, you know, I can understand it. I can, I have empathy for her, but I don't like her approach and just saying, no, don't do it. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and you're about to hear from Ed. He called me from here in Maryland. Ed shared the sad circumstances of his adoptive parents losing two children, but not really healing from the losses. Feeling loyalty to his adoptive parents, he went on a clandestine search for his birth mother, found her, then lost touch for years, all of which exacerbated his anxiety within him. Fortunately, Ed reunited with his maternal and paternal sides and connected to his personal history in some unique ways. This is Ed's journey. Ed said he wanted to tell his story in chronological order, so he starts at the very beginning with the stories his birth mother shared with him. In 1960, the woman worked at the Pentagon as a civilian employee. She was an artist, doing graphics design work to make presentations and doing illustrations for periodicals. It was there she met Ed's biological father, a U.S. Navy fighter pilot. When she was three months pregnant, the Pentagon basically forced her to resign, citing, quote, ill health when they documented the reason for her resignation. She was fired for being pregnant. So uh, she gave birth to me in a hospital in Alexandria, Virginia. And she said that she counted my fingers and toes. So she was able to hold me uh, for, she was able to see me for like 15 minutes, I think. And uh, she said that when she saw my fingers, she knew that I would be an artist like she was. So my biological father knew about my existence, but he was kind of in, den in denial about paternity. I guess there was no DNA testing back then, and um, that gave him plausible deniability, I guess. Anyway, he wasn't supportive, and their relationship broke up. He had been kind of a playboy at the time, so he, at that time in his life, he had been irresponsible. Although later he would become a family man, but not until years later. So anyway, so that's, that explains my um, adoption. So my birth mother told me that um, within a few months she found a new boyfriend, and he told her that he would help her to get me out of foster care, because I, I was in foster care for three months. Yeah. And she believed that the issue was that she was unmarried, so if she got married, she would be able to reclaim me from foster care. So she married this man in July of 1961, but that was the, the same time that I was uh, placed for adoption with my adoptive family. So there, there, she was just a day or two late, you know, otherwise she wouldn't have been able to reclaim me. Wow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of heavy. Yeah, it is. What, what did you think when you heard her tell you that? Well, she told me that years later, actually, even not when we first met, 
but years later, it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of a shock to me. But that was kind of difficult to hear. I, I felt bad for her because um, it, just, it just struck me as very unfair, the whole situation. I'm not blaming my adoptive parents. I mean, I love my adoptive parents. The system back then was very rigid, and I don't think that it was fair the way that it worked out. Ed's adoptive father was a manager at an insurance company. His adoptive mother was a registered nurse. She put her career on hold to start their family. They had two daughters in the late 1950s, both of whom died tragically of a rare genetic disease that took them within months after their birth. His parents adopted Ed's sister, three years older than himself, in 1960. Then, Ed was adopted in 1961. His sister was adopted when she was a toddler. After Ed's adoption, the family left Virginia, moved west to California, then back to Montgomery County, Maryland, five years later. Then in 1966, um, I was five years old, and my adoptive father sat my sister and me down to explain that my adoptive mother was an alcoholic. So he explained to us that alcoholism was a disease and that we shouldn't be mad with the with the person with alcoholism, we should get mad at the disease. So I thought that was very helpful. Mm. So I, my sister and I think that our adopted mother's alcoholism must be some have something to do with the loss of her biological children. Mm -hmm. Oh, and she had, uh, by the way, uh, when I was four, they had a third biological child, a son, and he also died of the same disease. Oh, no. So, yeah, so it was really horrible. And then after that, they had no more biological children. They gave up on that. So when I was six, that's when my adoptive parents told me that I was adopted and that my older sister was adopted. And um, they were very nonchalant about it. That kind of helped. I mean, I didn't take it badly. I didn't, it wasn't upsetting to me, but I think maybe because I was so young, I didn't really understand everything. You know, I remember them telling me that my natural mother, and they used the word natural mother because they didn't have the term birth mother back then. Mm -hmm. They said that my natural mother had, you know, given me up to have a better life because she couldn't care for me, basically. And I don't know, looking back, I don't know if they were aware that she had tried to get me out of foster care. I, I have no idea if they were aware of that at all. Yeah, probably not, right? Because once an adoption sort of goes through, I don't I. I don't think there's any sort of reconciliation yeah, I think, I think with of, what transpired, you know, on the other end of yeah, the transaction. Yeah, I think it was because of confidentiality. They yeah. didn't know much. You know, I think they did know some things, but they probably didn't know that much. Yeah, right. And in that era, there was a lot of, shall we say, falsehood in the process, right? You know, they would, yeah. they would, they would make parents believe one thing about the mother, and they would make the mother thing a, think a certain thing about the parents, you know, to sort of make it seem more final, you know? And so I'm, I'm sure there was no sort of relaying the fact that the mother, your birth mother wanted you back. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah, I know my birth mother didn't know anything about who I was adopted by or anything like that. Um, and my, 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 my adoptive parents must've gotten some information like, um, my biological father was in the Navy, and he was a pilot. And I remember when I was a, a little kid, and I was playing with a, a toy airplane. And I think my adoptive parents had given it to me. Um, and my they were very excited that I was playing with this airplane. And they made a big deal out of it. I didn't understand. You know, it's like I didn't, make, I didn't think much of it at the time. But looking back, I'm wondering if 
they knew that my biological father had been a pilot and maybe then they saw me playing with a toy airplane and I thought, Oh, you know, it's genetic or something. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a pilot by the way, that never occurred to me, but um, that was never uh, a career path that, that occurred to me. Right. But um, looking back, it just makes me wonder like how much did they know? You know, did they know that my biological mother was an artist? Because they were always very supportive of, you know, whenever I did art, but I, I don't, you know, did they know that that might be genetic too, but they never talked about it because it was kind of a taboo subject. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, other than telling us, my, they did tell my sister and I that we were adopted. So they were honest about that. And I give them credit for that. But my mother was an artist. Like maybe it said something about that in a profile, maybe mm-hmm. um, like a non-identifying information. I mean, later I got non-identifying information. I don't know how much of that they got. So, but it would have been nice if they had told me, you know, your natural mother was an artist, you know, that might have impacted my um, identity. In retrospect, Ed thinks his adoptive father may have been measuring him against the image of his birth father, the fighter pilot. He had the sense that his adoptive father may have been hoping his son would grow up in that image, and he may have been disappointed in Ed. Ed also shared that at 13, he had made an important realization about his identity. I realized that I was gay, and I think that might have something to do with it, you know, although um, my, I could have done worse for adoptive parents or for parents, period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they took it pretty well, but back then, especially, that was, um, I think, difficult for parents to hear that, you know, one of their kids is gay. Mm-hmm. And um, my adoptive father, he was... Um, very good about it. I mean, um, I think it came as kind of a, maybe a surprise or, you know, I think, I think he was always measuring me against my biological father who had been very, you know, this tough guy, uh, fighter pilot. And that's just not my personality at all. I take more after my biological mother, I guess. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. So did you, you came out to your parents at 13? Um, I came out to my, Mother, when I was my adopted mother, I came out to her when I was 13, and she said that I was too young to know what I was, you know, and uh, so she was kind of in denial about it. And then I told my father when I was 15, I think, but by then my mother had probably told him. (laughs) But uh, he he took it pretty well. He said that uh, he and my mother had had a gay friend when they lived in San Francisco, back when we were living in California for that brief time. And he had a cousin who was a lesbian. And then from that point on, he would try to include her more in family gatherings. And I think that was, that was nice. It was like, okay, here's another member of our family who's LGBT. And, you know, I, I thought that was, he was pretty smart about it. And my, my adopted mother had a little bit more difficulty. Um, because she's more conservative and he was more liberal. Mm-hmm. But she believed in unconditional love. And so neither one of them was bad about it, you know, like, like they didn't kick me out or anything like that. That's great. I mean, I could have, I could have done worse. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. So much worse. So much worse. That's really awesome that they were in a position to be accepting of what you came with them as part of your own identity. Because let's face it, back then, the, you know, the ideals of masculinity were pretty tight and there wasn't a lot of room for a young man to come out as gay. So for you to be able to admit that 
you know, at 15 was was pretty admirable. Ed decided that when he went to college, he would go to D.C. to be closer to the LGBTQ community there and further away from the small town of Damascus, Maryland, where he lived a closeted life in high school. It was really important to Ed to talk about the anxiety he's lived with throughout his life. He told me when he was eight years old, he had a temper tantrum and broke a bunch of pencils, alarming his adoptive father with his destructive behavior. His mother took him to see a psychologist, but she wasn't a believer in mental health support and she thought psychology was a crock. It was a popular sentiment decades ago. The family dynamics were kind of complicated. My, although my parents were wonderful people, they had this tragedy and they hadn't really worked through it. You know, I think they both should have gotten therapy for losing their biological children. Mm-hmm. And I think there was just a lot that they hadn't processed. Sure. And then my mother became an alcoholic, you know, and she did join AA. That was good. But my father didn't really process that well, you know, like he continued to have alcohol in the house. And I thought to be supportive of her, he really should have stopped drinking, at least in the house. Right. But he didn't do that. So, you know, I guess that was the mentality back then in the 1970s. So there was just a lot going on in my life at that time. So there's reasons for me to be anxious, you know. And then I remember when I was 12 or 13, I had what I thought was a nervous breakdown. And I haven't really told a whole lot of people about this. I was having an argument with my adoptive mom. And as I recall, it was about guitar lessons. Because she came from a very musical family, and she wanted her kids, her adoptive kids, to be musical too. And I don't think that we really were, you know, because we hadn't gotten that gene. Right. <laughs> But she really wanted us to be musical. And I, I just did not like the guitar lessons. Um, and I wanted to quit. So that was what we were arguing about. And I had a kind of a seizure, you know. And I remember falling on the floor in the bathroom and kind of losing control of my body. I, I was very sweaty and I couldn't move my hands or my arms or exactly what way I wanted to. It was very weird. And I, at the time I climbed, I climbed into the bathtub and I was fully clothed and I was drenched in sweat. And then I asked my mother after the episode had passed, I got out of the bathtub and, you know, I, I was having a conversation with her and asked, was that a nervous breakdown? And should I say, should I go back to see the psychologist again? And she said, well, psychology is a crock. Oh. So we didn't go back to see the psychologist again. But I think that that had to do with, I think it was psychological. I I don't remember if she took me to get checked for epilepsy. I mean, in retrospect, that would kind of be a logical thing to do. Mm -hmm. But I'm not epileptic. So that was probably, that was, when I talk about having anxiety, that's what I'm talking about. um, That was kind of an extreme example of my anxiety. In college, Ed's anxiety subsided. He had met other people in the LGBTQ community, and college was a good time of his life. He was on the dean's list a few times, and he felt more at home during college in D.C. In the early 1980s, it was the era of the AIDS epidemic, and Ed met the man he wanted to have a long-term relationship with. I wanted to settle down because I was was nervous about that. And we've been together ever since. And he's deaf. He taught me sign language. Oh, wow. So I was kind of, I was busy with that, busy getting settled in my career. And my adoptive parents got divorced in 1985. 
and my mother was in a treatment program for alcoholism, and that treatment program succeeded, and she's was sober ever since then. As an adult, Ed learned that one of his friends was also an adoptee and was on a search for his birth mother. Hearing that search was possible, Ed started thinking about finding his own birth mother. When Ed was 29 years old, he joined a group called Adoptees in Search. My adoptive mother was very insecure about my sister and me ever searching for our birth mothers. At one point, I was a teenager in high school, and my sister was, I think, at college, and she was home for the summer. And this is one of the few times that my adoptive mother talked to us about adoption. Because my adoptive mother had been reading a book by Christina Crawford. This is the adoptive daughter of Joan Crawford. The book was um, Mom Dearest. Yes. And my adoptive mother sided with Joan Crawford. (laughs) And she was very mad with Christina Crawford. Because I, I guess because my adoptive mother had was an alcoholic and an adoptive mother, she identified with Joan Crawford and she took her side and she she was mad at Christina and she said that Christina was just out for money and she should have been grateful to Joan Crawford and all of this stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, and she said that she was my mother, my adoptive mother told my sister and me that she was militantly opposed to us searching for our birth mothers. That we should always remember that she was our mother. So now I think I have two mothers, adoptive mother and a biological mother. Right. I don't have any problem with that. But my adoptive mother did have a problem, and she just wanted to be the only one. You know, and she was very insecure. I think I, I think it's kind of natural. You know, I can understand it. I can I have empathy for her, but I don't like her approach of just saying no, don't do it. So anyway, when I start, I decided to search. I decided to just do it behind her back, you know, just not tell her, you know, so just kind of secretive. And maybe that's not the best approach. Secrecy is usually not a good approach. But I kind of felt like the adoption system, the, the baby scoop error adoption was secretive itself. So, I, I mean, I guess two wrongs don't make a right. But I felt like, okay, well, everything was secret on their side. You know, they were keeping secrets from my sister and me. You know, probably, you know, like my birth mother being an artist or my biological father being a Navy pilot. You know, those are things that they probably kept secret from me. So, Right. But um, the other thing is, you know, when you don't feel supported in your search, but you know you want to search, why would you tell someone to continue to not get yeah. supported? You know what I mean? Like there's no reason yeah, yeah. to saying, hey, just wanted to know that thing you told me not to do. I'm still doing it. That's not going to go well. So I understand. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And I and I was I was I was really worried about my adopted mother and her sobriety. I didn't want her to relapse. Oh yeah. You know, and so I I, I, I treated her. You know, she she complained to me sometimes that I treated her like she was made out of class. And also, many adoptees we have this sense of divided loyalties and am I being disloyal to my adoptive parents? And, and, I, and we carry around guilt. And I was definitely still in that in that guilt phase back then. But anyway, uh, my curiosity just got a better part of me, I guess. Ed was 31 when he was with the Adoptee Birth Parents Support Network. They put him in touch with the Virginia Department of Human Services, who ushered him through the process. The processing fee was $340 for search services. In August of 1993, a social worker called Ed to say that his search was successfully completed and his natural mother had consented to contact. Of course, I was thrilled. 
and we started off by um, exchanging letters with photographs. And she told me that her parents, or my maternal grandparents, had already passed away. So on September 27th, 1993, I talked with her on the phone for the first time. And uh, we learned we had a lot in common, that we were both artistically inclined, that we were both fans of an architect uh, named Frank Lloyd Wright. He's kind of a famous architect from the 1930s and 40s. And um, he designed Falling Water and a number number of other famous buildings. And I was just very fascinated with him in high school. And then when I was talking with my birth mother, I found out that she had also been fascinated with Frank Lloyd Wright when she was a teenager. It's like, what? That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, yeah, how common? It, that's, I mean, it's not that he's an obscure architect and he's pretty famous, but still, how many teenagers geek out on Frank Lloyd Wright? <laughs> Um, and uh, oh, she told me that her mother had had nervous breakdowns. So I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. I have this anxiety issue, and I had a nervous breakdown, and her mother had nervous breakdowns. So maybe there's something genetic there, you know. So I, I don't know if what she had was psychogenic seizures, you know, like the one that I think I think that's what I had, but maybe, you know, I don't know. I asked Ed if it was a relief to hear that the kind of episode he experienced when he was a teenager was in his biological history. He told me an adoptee's life can be like a big puzzle, so it was good to get more puzzle pieces to work with. But he admitted it would have been nice to have known that portion of his family medical history years before, back when he needed it. I think that's a, as an adoptee, that's something that really bugs me. The system of adoption is the lack of family medical history and that it's just not passed on to uh, to the adoptees, even if it's passed on to the adopted parents. And, you know, at least in my case, it didn't get passed on to me. We just kind of breezed past the lead up to Ed meeting his adoptive mother. So I asked him to go back a bit to share what happened before they met. He said they exchanged letters and photographs using fax machines back then. Ed said it was very exciting to be receiving correspondence from his birth mother. On a three-day weekend that winter, Ed drove down to North Carolina to meet his birth mother and her second husband. I was just on cloud nine the whole time that I was with them. I, now, I didn't really read up on how you're supposed to do a reunion. You know, I went into it very naive. You know, like, uh, since then, I've read advice that you should bring someone along with you for emotional support, you know, your partner, or um, you should meet in a neutral place like a hotel lobby or something like that. I didn't know any of that stuff, so I just drove down there by myself, and I stayed as a guest in their guest room in their house. Wow. <laughs> and that, uh, but luckily, it all worked out fine. You know, it wasn't like I didn't get rejected. You know, I was – that does happen sometimes, uh, sadly. But we had a really good time, and I remember – her husband would give us this, give us both kind of a strange look sometime. Like we were both exhibiting similar mannerisms or he, he kept looking at us and he had this quizzical expression on his face or he was like, he was abused, you know, or he would be smiling and shaking his head. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. So uh, external validation on how the two of you look together that you probably yeah. can't see super well because you're sitting next to each other and admiring one another, but. For this third party, yeah, and actually, I think. Must have been cool. Yeah, and actually, I don't think we we don't actually look that much alike. 
I think uh, I think it's more. I, th I think I'm more like my biological mother on the inside, and I more resemble my biological father on the outside. <laughs> but I, we do have some family resemblance, but it's not it's not it's not that striking. But anyway, uh, one thing that really struck me was in my junior year, I had attended college at American University in Northwest DC, and my birth mother, although she had growing up in North Carolina and was currently living in North Carolina. For a while, she and her husband had lived in D.C. And they had lived uh, not far from American University. And she had she was in the habit back then, she had been in the habit of uh, going to the track at American University and going jogging there. So she had access to jog on the track there. And while I was in college, I had also gone jogging on the same track. So my Birth mother and I had both had the experience of jogging on the exact same track. Oh my gosh, that's crazy! <laughs> that's yeah. unreal. Was yeah, that, that's she, was she jogging there at the in the same year that you were there too? No, I think I think she was there earlier in the 1970s, and I was there uh, in the late. No, I guess I was there maybe 1979, but I think they were a few years separating us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still, though, there's something really magical about knowing that you have, in this case especially, treaded the same path that one of your biological parents has. You know, it's just fascinating. Like, you've literally walked on something that is, you know, historically relevant to your family. You've walked in the same steps. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it is. That was just really striking. So she has roots in North Carolina, and, and I guess she, I do too, <laughs> through her, yeah, right. have roots both in North Carolina and in Virginia and in Maryland. And um, some of our ancestors came through uh, the Jamestown colony, you know, which was the colonial capital before Williamsburg. So um, that was interesting. Uh, my mother and her husband are both very progressive, and I'm pretty progressive myself. But her parents are very conservative, and if you keep going back further and further, you know, the, the history on that side is, I mean, that side of my family, there's some things I'm not proud of. I mean, they were very racist, and um, like her, apparently her parents and grandparents, um, I think her mother more so than her father, maybe. I, I never met them, so I can't judge for myself. That she said that her mother, like she would be uh, listening to black musicians on the radio, and her mother would scold her for it, not let her listen to black musicians. So that was the kind of the atmosphere that she was raised in, but she rebelled against it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, if you go back far enough, I have ancestors who were in the Confederacy. So yeah, that makes me sad to know that, yeah. but um, it's it's good to know it than not to know it. Sure, absolutely. So you can learn lessons from history. I, I, what I remember from that time of meeting them, the first meeting and the first few meetings, was it all felt very surreal to me. So sometimes people call your biological parents your real parents, but I think of them as my surreal parents. After that first meeting, Ed and his birth mother saw one another about once a year for five years. One time, she happened to be on business travel, so she came up to visit Ed at his home. I asked him about their relationship over the years and how things developed. The main problem with our relationship is really on my side, and that was that I had this feeling of guilt, you know, that I, I was this having divided loyalties, and I, 
also I was worried because I made I was keeping it a secret. I was worried about my adoptive parents finding out. I did tell my adoptive sister that I had found my birth mother. Because we were at the beach on a family vacation. And my sister and I were standing apart from everyone else, you know, some people couldn't hear couldn't hear our conversation. And my sister got very uptight, you know. Um, and she so I asked, should I tell so at that point our adoptive parents had divorced. And we were on a vacation with my adoptive father and his new wife and um, my sister and her husband and their kids. My, so my adoptive mother wasn't in the picture, you know, she wasn't part of the vacation. But I asked my sister, well, should I tell our dad, you know, that I found my birth mother? And she's just very uptight about the whole thing. So I respected her, her choice that we not discuss it with my adoptive father. So there was, my sister and I, because it was kind of a, adoption was kind of a taboo subject in our adoptive family. We didn't talk about it much. We both kind of had a hang up about it. So I, I explained to my birth mother that I was keeping her a secret. And she said that it made her feel like the other woman, you know, <laughs> but she went along with it. In the late 1980s, Ed's birth mother retired and she and her husband moved out of North Carolina. She thought she told Ed the name of the island they were moving to and her forwarding mailing address. Ed can't remember receiving that information at all. They lost touch with each other. But the thing was, Ed hadn't moved, and the woman still had his contact information, so Ed couldn't figure out why his birth mother wasn't reaching out to him either. I was kind of resented resented that. I felt a little bit rejected. At some point, I started having panic attacks. This is my anxiety coming back. Like at one point I thought I was having a heart attack and I went to the hospital and everything. And the doctor said, no, you're not having a heart attack. So maybe you're having a panic attack and you should be seeing a psychologist. So I, I made an appointment with a psychologist and I don't remember if the topic of adoption came up because I, I was still kind of in the fog and I, I knew I was suffering from anxiety. But I didn't connect it to losing touch with my birth mother. But in retrospect, I do. In retrospect, I totally think it was because I had lost contact with my birth mother. Because now I know about, you know, the primal wound and all of that. So I think that that's fed into my anxiety. I wouldn't say that's completely explains my anxiety, but I, I think that's a factor in my anxiety is when, if you've read the primal wound, you know, most of or many adoptees have. I hadn't back then. I wish I had. <laughs> I would have clarified a lot of things. Yeah. Um, the primal wound is about when a baby is separated from their biological mother. They they experience separation trauma, and you know it's it's something that most people don't realize happens. So that's that was uh, proposed in a book written by Nancy Berrier, a psychologist in California back in the early 1990s. So anyway, where uh, was I? I was having these panic attacks. I saw a psychologist, and I don't remember if I mentioned that I was adopted, but at any rate, we didn't connect it with my adoption or with my having lost touch with my birth mother. We didn't explore any of that, unfortunately. And I felt like I really wasn't getting much out of the psychologist, so I stopped seeing him. Late one night, Ed was up watching television when he saw an advertisement for a program for people suffering from anxiety. Lucinda Bassett said in the commercial that she was a motivational speaker who had also suffered from anxiety, but had learned a path to conquering hers 
offering to help others to find their way out of their anxiety with her program. So I, I ordered her audio tapes and I listened to them and I followed her advice and I got my anxiety under control. So that was what happened. That's what happened there. That's really fantastic. And, you know, one of the things that I often say on the show is I think that people need to sort of open up and turn to mental health resources, right? We've often been taught, you know, keep your feelings inside and don't let it show and don't tell people all this, you know, all of these horrible things that are terrible for your mental health. When in fact, I know I've always felt better when I've opened up and talked about things with people, you know, because you, for lack of better words, get it off your chest, let alone have sort of a sounding board. And, and they sometimes can offer you, you know, tools, tips, and resources for how to navigate situations. And it's great that you were able to find tools, tips, and resources from this woman's program in order to overcome something that had been challenging you for years. That's really awesome. Yeah, I think, I think, I think so. I mean, it was a big help to me. Um, it was self-help, basically. But I, I feel like the psychologists that I saw when I was a child and then again as an adult, um, they, missed, they completely missed out on the adoption angle. They, in retrospect, I don't think they were what you would call adoption competent. Um, and I think that they should have read, well, when I was a child, the book about the primal wound hadn't been written yet. Right. <laughs> but by the time I was an adult, by the time I was having panic attacks, that book had already been written. It would have been ideal if I'd gone to see a psychologist who would have asked me, are you adopted? And, oh, by the way, there's this book, you know, The Primal Wound, you know, I, I could have educated myself about it back then. Years went by. Ed and his husband got married in 2009 when their union became legal. At home one day, Ed decided to Google his birth father's name, Scott Purvis. He's kept his birth mother's identity private here because he wants to preserve her anonymity, but he's comfortable sharing his birth father's identity because the man is deceased and he made history, which Ed will explain shortly. I came across a, a biographical entry for a man named Ronald Scott Purvis, and it said that he was a financial planner and that there was a mountain in Antarctica named after him, uh, Purvis Peak. And I thought, well, that can't be the guy. Like, why would my biological father have a mountain named after him? That's crazy. Right. So I just kind of dismissed it. So time went on, and then in, uh, in 2010, my adoptive father passed away. He had uh, Louis Body's dementia. It was very sad. Then in 2015, my adopted mother passed away from COPD. She was a, a chain smoker, and she never gave up smoking, and she died of COPD. So that was, that was very sad. She was, when I, I was there at her deathbed, and she had a smile on her face. And that just really struck me. I never seen. I mean, I haven't seen many people die, but I've never seen someone die with a with a uh, smile on their face. That was very reassuring to me that that she had had um, she had died in a, in a peaceful way. And I, in retrospect, I think it was because she was looking forward to being reunited with her biological babies in heaven. You know, she's very religious, and she was looking forward to being reunited with her biological children and her other family members too, and with her parents in heaven. I bet um, you're right. That's a really fascinating insight that, you know, children whom she had given birth to who, you know, parted this earth way too soon. I'm sure that they were on her mind every single day. And you, you're probably right. That's really interesting that you were able to pick up on that. So uh, 
we had her memorial service um, in August, and then after after her memorial service, uh, it's like a light bulb a light bulb went off, and I decided it's really time for me to search for my biological parents. I mean, to, to reconnect with my birth mother and to search for my birth father. And I think it was because I had that that divided sense of divided loyalties that was kind of gone. I felt like I had done my duty. It's not. I'm not saying I did it begrudgingly. I mean, I was happy to do my duty. Um, to my adopted mother in her old age, and I kind of focused my attention on her, and also my, to a lesser extent, but still to my adopted father, too. Uh, I played more of a caregiver role for my adopted mother, but I felt like, okay, I've, I've done my duty, and now I can, I'm kind of free, and it felt very freeing to me. I'm, I'm free to search for my, and reconnect with my biological parents. It took him a while, but in 2015, Ed did a Google search for his biological mother. He said he kind of kicked himself for not searching and reconnecting with his birth mother before then, but he was kind of in the fog of it all, feeling rejected by her since she hadn't been in touch, and there were several competing emotions within him. He found her phone number at her new retirement home. When he called, she answered the phone, and the 18-year disconnected estrangement was over. We renewed our relationship. By this point, we were both on Ancestry.com, and she shared her um, family tree with me from Ancestry. And she'd done a lot of work in the last 18 years, <laughs> a lot of genealogical research. That was really interesting. And then um, in August 2015, I found my biological father through Ancestry through his Naval Academy yearbook. And I, I looked at the photo, this Naval Academy cadet photo, and I thought I saw a resemblance. Um, and I was wondering, why am I crazy? Is it, does he really look like me or is it just wishful thinking? You know, I, and um, but it, it just set, it set my head spinning. Oh, my gosh. Ed had done some research on Facebook where he found the man's wife's Facebook page and links to the pages of their three children. He found the man's contact information after paying a small fee to an Internet search service. Ed worked up his courage and made the call. The man's wife answered, and she was receptive to speaking with Ed, but she also wanted to confer with her daughter. I mean, this guy calls out of the blue, saying he's her husband's son? Of course, that was reasonable. The daughter suggested they take a DNA test to prove their relation, if there was one. The parties met at a hotel halfway between their homes in Maryland and Virginia to do a paternity test. I did the cheek swab, and then his wife helped him do the cheek swab. Now, at this point, he had beginnings of Alzheimer's, which was unfortunate, but he was still with it enough to, to be able to have conversations. So he couldn't, he couldn't live independently. He was living with his wife, and she was his caregiver, but he could still have conversations. So we met at this hotel, and I, oh, I was so nervous. I had so much anxiety about this meeting. Right? Blood pressure must have been through the roof. <laughs> I, I asked my stepmother, my adoptive father's widow, I asked her to drive me. So she drove me to this hotel. It was like two hours away. And we met, and my biological father, we shook hands. Um, he was kind of reserved, but he was polite. He was also very skeptical. He, did, he still thought that he wasn't the guy. Like the, this whole time, my whole life he had known about me, but he had it in, stuck in his head that, he wasn't the biological father, so that was the that's the context. Okay, um, we had uh, I guess you could say it was a pleasant 
meeting. You know, I was polite. Uh, I was very nervous. And uh, uh, Lynn's friend took our pictures because she wanted to get pictures. And I remember the, the three ladies, you know, looking at both of us, looking back and forth, you know, to see if there was a resemblance. And I, I, I felt like I didn't see a resemblance. I was just, I got into this negative mindset where I was like, oh, gosh, I must have contacted the wrong guy. You know, and I'm putting this elderly couple to all of this trouble. And, you know, maybe it's, you know, I'm, it's for nothing. You know, I felt bad. You know, I was hoping that, you know, I just had, oh, my gosh, I was a mess. <laughs> I was a hot mess. So anyway, but the, but Lynn, she said she could see a resemblance in our noses. So, okay, that's all right if you see it. <laughs> so that was a polite meeting, uh, but we didn't hug or anything because we didn't know if we were related or not. It would take a couple of weeks to receive the results from the test. While he waited, Ed went to see a psychologist about his anxiety. For that therapy session, he brought a photo of himself with his birth father, and thankfully, the therapist verified that she saw their resemblance. I was really excited and kind of hyper um, during this period. So I finally got the DNA results, and it confirmed that I was Scott's biological son. And then from that point on, Scott's family became more friendly. But I forgot to mention, uh, in the interim, during this interim period where we didn't know the results, one of my biological sisters called me. And she was very skeptical. And she was, this is not a pleasant phone call. <laughs> I, I was, so I got the phone call. I was at work. I was going on a walk, like during my lunch break. And I got the phone call. And I just, I was so nervous talking to her. I like, I couldn't continue walking, so I, I had to sit down. So I just sat down by the side of this building <laughs> because I just felt overwhelmed. And I, I was talking with her, and she was asking me all of these questions, like she was interrogating me. Like, what do you want from us? I know she was worried that I wanted money, that it was some sort of a scam. and She was trying to protect her elderly parents from a con artist or something. But she was, she was asking me lots of questions. And then I was trying to answer her questions by telling her my life story, but she didn't want to hear my life story. It was very awkward. But finally she said, well, if the test results come back confirming our father is your father, you will be a member of the family. So that, that really hit me. It's like, wow, she's going to welcome me a member, as a member of the family. So even though it started off rough, uh, it had kind of a nice ending. I had kind of a hopeful ending, you know? Yeah, sure. It's, it began with interrogation, but there was this conditional acceptance inserted in there. Yeah, I think she was kind of, she was she was also kind of testing my reaction. She was kind of pushing me mm -hmm. to see how I would react under pressure. Yeah, that's right. If she could get you to fold, then she could prove that you were not the person that you said you were, right? Yeah, some something like that. Something like that. She's kind of the she kind of like she's kind of like the. That's her role is like to be the guardian, I think, to guard her father, you know, our father. Yeah, certainly. I mean, so, we're all protective of our parents, you know? Yeah. So, I but I think that's kind of common for adoptees is there are certain members of the biological family who think you're in it for the money, you know? Yeah. I think that's not unusual. Yeah. So anyway, after the DNA results came back, everybody came friendlier, and I got invited over to their house on multiple occasions, and I had lots of pleasant conversations with Scott, and he talked about, I mean, he, he did have Alzheimer's, so his short-term memory was shot, and he had increasing difficult time remembering who I was, but he still, he was talkative. He liked talking about, if I asked him questions about his history, you know, his 
He had a fascinating career. I was so interested. I asked him lots of questions about that. And he was happy to talk about his career as a jet, you know, as a fighter pilot. He had, in the late 1950s, he had been on an expedition, something called Operation Deep Freeze. It was like a research that the Navy was involved in, um, a research program over two or three Antarctic summers. And he flew a plane. He, he was stationed in McMurdo, and he flew a jet plane uh, to the South Pole, and he planted the American flag on the South Pole. And that's why he had the name in, in uh, Antarctica, a mountain in Antarctica named after him. Wow. So I thought all of that was fascinating. I was so proud. I was just on cloud nine that whole time. That's called the honeymoon period. I was just, I was so happy during that time period. You you referred to the honeymoon period though. You sound as if there's a, a descent coming, like you you've reached the peak and now you're headed down. But yeah, the honeymoon period is over. I mean, um, I feel more the word is stable. Is that the right? I mean, I guess I, I I don't want to say I'm I'm an unstable person. I mean, I had a, a healthy career. You know, I held I held down jobs fine. I I mean, I had an anxiety that spiked at certain times. So I don't want to make it seem like. Um, I've ever been really unstable, <laughs> but I, I feel more stable now from that. When I met Scott, it was kind of a peak experience for me, and I was on cloud nine, and you, eventually you come down from the peak, but it was never anything, it wasn't anything bad. Like, um, I didn't like crash from that peak. The whole, it's been a good experience for me, meeting my biological family, um, and I've met cousins on both sides, the maternal side and the paternal side, and everybody's been welcoming. And now I'm at a stage where I'm um, introducing my adopted family and my biological family to each other, which is nice. Oh, I mean, I, I would like us all to be one big happy family. I think that's probably unrealistic, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm trying to like integrate these different parts of myself. That's what you have to do as an adoptee. It's a lot of integration work. And I feel like I'm making a lot of progress. Coincidentally, Ed's birth father, Scott, was also really into genealogy. But with Alzheimer's consuming his brain, the man wasn't able to convey his passion for his family history very well. When he was finally placed in a nursing home for care, Ed was concerned that the family history might be lost. I was asking her, do you think his, the family tree, that he had, he had put a lot of effort into compiling a family tree? Do you think it might be on his laptop? She was very friendly and supportive, and she gave me his laptop. And um, I guess I'm getting emotional <laughs> talking about this. She uh, she gave me the laptop, and I found a file on it, and I didn't recognize the extension. So I, I did some research, and I found it was a personal ancestry file that I could open it up with a certain program called Family Tree. And I was able to open the file, and it was it was his it was the family tree file and it had like 13,000 names on it. So he'd done a lot of research wow. going back many generations. That was just a treasure trove of information for me. So I learned a lot about his side of the family. His side of the family come, came from Ohio and New England. Um, so I, I have ancestors who fought on both sides of the civil war <laughs> on the, for the union and for the Confederacy. So that was interesting. Yeah. Wow. He, uh, he sounds like an amazing guy, you know, just for his interest in, in family and his adventures as a pilot and everything. I, I found Purvis Peak 
here on uh, Google Maps. It's <laughs> Good. south of New Zealand, and it's just fascinating to see. Oh, this mountain is named after Ed's biological father. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that, that was that was fascinating. And I, I think you know when you're when you're adopted and you you haven't found your biological family yet, it's like you have a tendency to think the worst. You know, mm-hmm. um, like oh, you know, they were maybe they were drug addicts, or you know, maybe it was a rape situation, or I don't think I, I didn't really dwell on that a lot growing up. But when I was like beginning my search, I didn't allow myself to have positive thoughts because I didn't want to be disappointed. Sure. But I didn't like to do any of that. So the the thought that you know uh, my biological father could have a mountain named after him that was so far out from anything I had prepared myself for. <laughs> That's crazy. That's super cool. Wow. Uh, yeah, my my biological father was active in an organization named Sons of the American Revolution, mm-hmm. and I think more people have heard of this organization called Daughters of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. But there's also Sons of the American Revolution actually came first, but Daughters of the American Revolution took off more. <laughs> right. uh, at any rate, my birth mother was also active in Daughters of the American Revolution. So I thought, uh, well, why don't I apply to be in Sons of the American Revolution like my biological father? So uh, on, my, on his side, we have a patriot ancestor who was a minute man. In Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. And on my mother's side, we have a patriot ancestor who served in North Carolina in the Continental Army. So I applied through my mother's side. So all I had to do was piggyback on her application. So I was accepted into Sons of the American Revolution, and I'm still active in my local chapter. So I feel like I'm following in their footsteps, though. Something that I, I get some satisfaction from. Yeah, that's really cool that you're you're sort of following a historical trajectory with this organization that is similar to your own biological parents and 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 related to your own personal history as much as it is to America's history. That's fascinating. Congratulations. That's cool. I'm halfway through it at this point. So um, uh, I remember when I was my mother, my birth mother told me that I was born that she looked at my fingers and she knew that I would be an artist. So I feel like I'm kind of coming full circle now. Oh, that's really cool. Wow, congratulations. That's really neat. Huh. Very good. Well, Ed, I'm always interested to hear how adoptees take on, you know, some responsibility for their biological families, right? How they reach back to try to be caregivers and things along those lines. So that's a that's a really fascinating sort of recent development for you. Congrats on that too. Wow. Yeah, I kind of feel like, I feel like um, I got experience with my adopted parents, especially with my adopted mother being a caregiver. And it's a, a lot of the same lessons I'm just applying to my biological mother. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, you've, you've got an amazing story of sort of finding your way through childhood, especially with parents who were so challenged by the losses of their biological children. You know, you've admitted that 
you you know took time to sort of come out as a, a gay man to them and and that's a risk that teenagers have to take you know in order to sort of solidify their identity yeah, I, I, had, I, had to, I had to come out to two sets of parents my adoptive parents and then my biological parents <laughs> yeah that's a that's a really good point and i'm sure that was that was really challenging but i'm hopeful that everybody was sort of accepting and you sound like you're real solid in who you are. yeah yeah I'm, I'm really i'm really blessed everybody's been everybody's been great that's fantastic well i'm glad your journey has turned out as well as it has and, and i'm glad for your sort of ability to get over your anxiety and stuff. And I just, I wish you all the best going forward. Okay, Ed, thanks for sharing your story. Okay. Man. Okay. Thanks, David. You take care. All the best. All right. Okay. You too. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. It was really sad to hear that Ed's adoptive parents lost two babies in succession. And it was crazy to hear how narrowly his birth mother may have missed getting her son back. But once the adoption machine's engine started moving, he was on his way to a new family. Ed suffered anxiety throughout his life that manifested itself in different ways, but was certainly exacerbated on his reunion journey. Fortunately, he was able to get it under control. Ed shared a few updates before we got off the phone. In the summer of 2021, He moved his birth mother from North Carolina to a retirement home near him in Maryland, and it was her idea. She's only 30 minutes away, so now he can see her more often, help her with things, and it's strengthening their relationship, which they both really like. Also, remember that Ed's birth mother was an artist. He decided that in his retirement, he would explore that side of himself. He joined a private art school, and he's halfway through a three-year program coming full circle from his birth mother saying, when she saw his baby fingers, she thought he would be an artist. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Ed's journey that inspired you, validated your feelings about wanting to search, or motivated you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash really or follow on Twitter at really. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And if you're interested, you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com, on Kindle, or as an audiobook on Audible. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.